Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Good to see you guys. Uh, would you stand and sing with us? Thanks for wearing your masks. We appreciate that. It keeps, keeps everyone in our congregation safe. The world is kind of weird right now, but I uh, appreciate you guys being here and singing. And um, This is a kind of new song. We've sung it a couple times. It's called Graves into Gardens. Uh, sing with us. And I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. satisfied here in your love oh there's nothing better than you oh there's nothing oh better than you oh there's nothing oh nothing is better than you and I'm not afraid 
Pray with me. God, you are worth our attention. God, you are worth our um, praise. God, we desire to be closer to you, God, because we know and believe you are closer to us, God, closer to us than we realize. And so, God, we acknowledge that today and ask, God, that you would draw still more near to us, God, as we turn our eyes towards you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can go ahead and take your seats. Well, welcome, Redemption Church. If you're new here, we want to especially welcome you. We're glad you're here, whether in person or 
joining us online. Thanks for being here. We are one church in 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Now, we're going to rejoice today in the gift of new life in the church. We're going to do child dedications, so we're super looking forward to that. Now, remember, child dedications are not simply a replacement for baptism. That's not the goal here. The goal is a pattern that we see in Scripture of presenting children new life in the church before the church community, and then the parents are going to express their intentions to you all and how they want to raise their child in the church, and then we as the church are going to respond with love and support and care in ways that we are able. Sound good? So families, why don't you go ahead and make your way up, and when you do, there's a green label microphone one of you can grab there. Look at her dress. Oh my goodness. This is the best. So yeah, one, one of you here on this corner, one in the middle, and then one over here. Yeah, thank you. Oh my goodness, this is the best already. We know that scripture has a lot to say to parents because the way that parents, these parents, the way that they teach in the home, another word for that is discipleship, the way they disciple in the home matters to God. Because Jesus loves kids, which, as I said a couple weeks ago, that's easy. We, we can hear that and go, yeah, totally, kids are awesome. Look at this, look at these little kids here, they're awesome. That's easy for us to see, right? But Jesus really valued and loved them in a way that was special and unique in his time. We see in passages like Deuteronomy that parents are to first love God with everything they have. That's our call as well. And then they are to teach and instruct in everything they do in the home. The Bible describes it as when you walk, when you lie down, when you sit at all times, write it all over the place and talk about it all the time, the works of God, the instruction of God. So it's a high call, it's an important task. And so why don't we have these parents introduce themselves and their family to you all so we can get to know them. I'm Trey, this is Hannah, and then this is Presley Pine. I'm Joe, this is Courtney, and our son, Cade, Wiltz. Thank you, guys. I'm Jordan, this is Emily, and this is Mackenzie Ann. Awesome. So can somebody, you guys are all friends, right? So they wanted to do this all together. They know each other. They're in community together. And so you guys all know each other and, and are friends, which is great. How cool that you guys have babies in the same age. You'll get to raise up together. It's really sweet. Uh, do you want to just, here, I'll take that. You plug that in. All right. So, there we go. There we go. I was wondering if those were going to make it up. That's little Presley. Look at that. So cute. And the last one. <laughs> That's a different baby. I'm just going to... So let me start, as best I can, trying to address these families while I address and kind of cheat out to the camera. This isn't, this, this'll work. Let me just start by encouraging you all. And this is what I tell every family that comes up here. Your family didn't begin the first day that this child came into your life. Your family began the day you two said, I do. That's when your new family began, right? That's a reminder for me, every time I say it's a reminder to me, that the most important thing in my family is my marriage. And that's my prayer for you all, is that you'd remember that. Your relationship with God comes first, your relationship to one another comes second, and your relationship, your investment in pouring into these kids comes third, comes third. It's important for them to see that, that we love God more than anything. We love each other. My kids still are surprised when I say, I love mommy more than you, but I love you a ton. Yeah, so it's that kind of dynamic we're talking about. It really prioritizes in a way that's healthy. The best gift you can give to these kids is a healthy marriage that is founded on the gospel of Jesus. That's the best thing you can do for your family. So I'm going to say three statements to you all. If that's your intention at the end, I want you to respond with this. Uh, we will 
by God's help. Okay? We will by God's help. Will you bring them up in the regular worship and teaching of the church? That these kids may come to love the church and so come to love, tri- uh, love and trust Christ as their Savior and follow him as Lord. If so, answer, we will with God's help. Will you, by God's help, work to provide a home with the gospel on full display? The idea here is they don't always have to see the best and most polished version of you, but really discipleship is letting them see the unpolished and unfinished parts of you, really pressing into the gospel. If so, answer, we will with God's help. Lastly, will you model genuine life in Christ to these kids? recognizing we can't save them as much as we we might want to. We can't do that. And so we pray for them. We pray with them. We serve God with them. Will you strive to live all of life all for Jesus? If so, answer, we will with God's help. And lastly, the church. Before God and before one another, members of Redemption Arcadia, will you be faithful Christians? Simply, just be faithful to God. Live all of life, all for Jesus. And as you have opportunity, pray for these families. Work to find ways to support them, especially if you're in community with them. If so, answer, we will, by God's help. It's a sweet thing, right? We're going to start that right now. So raise your hand forward and pray with me over these families. God, we ask first that you would bless these families. Bless them richly and abundantly, God. We pray that their marriage, the marriages up here, would remain steadfast and firmly fixed on the foundation of you, Jesus, in your word, that those rhythms that they began, even as dating, of reading the Bible together, praying together, that those things would remain, despite all the challenges coming their way, that those things would remain. And God, we ask that you would save these children, that as they grow up in the church and as they see, man, Jesus is real, this is real, that they too would be drawn to faith in Christ. That's the goal. So God, please save these children. And lastly, for us, God, the community, help us to be a community that would love, support, encourage, and exemplify Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's thank them for coming up. Thank you, guys. Now please stand for the reading of God's word. Good morning. It's very loud up here. The reading for today is from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Ben. Morning, Arcadia. Great to see you. Um, as I understand it, in the New Jerusalem, in heaven, there will be a, a, a select group of scripture readers, and Ben is already on that list. So. That's a long passage to read. We're looking at all of that today. Um, if you're new, my name is Frank, and I know we have some new people here because of the dedications. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. Um, I've been out of the pulpit the last two Sundays, and the Tylers have taken care of things, and I appreciate that. Um, I've just had a slew of weddings the last three weekends, and it's been wonderful. Two of them have actually been out of town. One was in Chattanooga. That was a lot of, I, I admit it, it was fun to go to Chattanooga and be there with uh, Jason and Eleanor. One was in Tucson, and even that was cool, so just <laughs> wanted to let you know. And then several others around here in Maricopa County, so uh, really kind of a time where uh, actually we're catching up on weddings that were postponed from last spring and early summer, <laughs> and now they're like, well, going to go ahead and do it no matter what because this COVID thing isn't going away, and then those that were already scheduled for. Uh, and I still have a few more to go this year, but at least I have a couple weeks now before the next one. So um, one announcement I wanted to make that, I, that concerns uh, uh, people who are really invested in this community here, and I think you'll appreciate knowing this. And, you know, 2020 hasn't offered a lot of good news, right? Um, this is a tiny morsel. It's a tiny, tiny morsel, but something that we can celebrate. So four and a half years ago when we secured our uh, mortgage uh, on this property to be able to obtain this property, uh, we, we got, because Neil Pitchell, who is the executive pastor over all of Redemption Church's 10 congregations, uh, he went and found the very best and lowest rate. And, and I'm, I've been around a while, and I looked at the rate, and I said, that's the lowest rate we're ever going to get on something like this. And, uh, and uh, I thought that was a done deal. Well, <clears throat> in August, Neil started talking to the bank about a lower rate, <laughs> our lender, uh, about a lower rate. And he was able to uh, renegotiate our mortgage um, without uh, lengthening the, the mortgage or putting any more money into the mortgage, costing us more money. And so our monthly payment was actually reduced from $9,000 to $7,000 a month. So that's 24 grand a year. Yeah, so, and if you, re if you were around four and a half, five years ago, four and a half years ago, you remember that I kept saying, isn't it amazing that the, uh, it was $2 difference, our mortgage payment on this property and our rental payment at 42nd Street and Thomas? It was $2 different, okay? And we have our own place. Now it's $2,000 less than what we were paying in rent four and a half years ago. So that's pretty cool too. So we're going to be looking at, this is actually, these 18 verses, one paragraph in the um, English uh, Standard Version. And so... Uh, and there's a lot here. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll get after it. Uh, Lord God, we just pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. Uh, as always, I just pray that you'd uh, help me do what I'm called to do, but also move me out of the way so that your word is what's heard today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We are going to pause, as you heard Tyler uh, say, we're going to pause, John, now, because next Sunday we start Advent. We'll have that for four Sundays plus New Year's Eve, and then we have the 27th of December and the 3rd of January as sort of one-offs, and then we start back in the Gospel of John on January 10th, which is also Redemption Church, Church's 10th anniversary, which we will also probably be, uh, we haven't finalized the schedule yet, but we're planning on um, installing our two new elders on that Sunday as well. So that'll be kind of a big Sunday. But on the 3rd, we're going to do that kind of past year, present year deal that we we've started doing every year, kind of in honor of Tom Schrader, but also because it's really an effective message, I think. So, so today we do look at this very long 18-verse paragraph. I am overwhelmed at the clear contemporary cultural application that this paragraph has for us today. It's almost... Uh, it, it, I really, as, a, as somebody who teaches Bible, I feel like a, a kid in the proverbial candy store with this passage. There's so much here. And so far in chapter 5, it's important to understand where we're coming from. In chapter 5, we've looked at, and again, Tyler Thompson and then Tyler James last week, we looked at uh, Jesus healing the guy 
uh, ironically, who was next to, for several years, the healing pool. But Jesus was the one who was able to heal him. But, of course, the bigger story of that apparently becomes the fact that Jesus did it on the Sabbath, which, of course, bent the professional religious people. That upset them very much. And then on top of that, Jesus claims that he's equal with God. He, he of course, created the Sabbath, so he can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. And why wouldn't you heal somebody on the Sabbath? I mean, that's a good, that's a good thing to do. Uh, but that, that was a problem. And then saying that he's equal with God, that he is God, in fact, becomes a huge problem. Uh, and again, I'll bring this up. I, I mention this a lot because I hear it a lot. People who, I hear people say, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. And I just say, have you read the Gospels? Because if you've read the Gospels, you can't make that claim. It's all over the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, and specifically places like here, but also in in John chapter uh, 10. Um, Anyway, after the equal with God stuff, Jesus then explains that he has all authority, which he would as as God. Uh, But in reading those verses, we find that one of the reasons that he does have authority, he claims to have authority, but we also read in here, in a couple of different places, we'll read, in them, uh, read one of them here today, the reason he has authority is because he's submitting his will to the Father. The reason he has authority is because he is submitting his will to the Father. That should be an interesting lesson for us today. That genuine authority comes from submission to God. That's when authority can actually kick in. Lots and lots of people have power. Lots and lots of people have authority. And we talk about how people abuse power and authority. But the challenge with that is that if they're not in submission to God, the way Joseph was at the end of Genesis, Joseph submitted everything to the Lord And he was given power and authority, and that's why he never abused it. He's a beautiful picture of somebody who has power and authority, who doesn't abuse it, but that's because he was fully submitted to God. And Jesus is giving us that same lesson here today. So let's dive into the 18 verses that we have today. I'm just going to go kind of verse by verse, a little bit at a time, and draw out some teaching and application. So verses 30 and 31. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I could do 40 minutes on that verse alone. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus says, I can't do anything on my own. Jesus says, I can't do anything on my own. But us? Culture's telling us all the time. We can do it on our own. You are all you need. You're going to change the world. You're going to cure cancer. You're going to be a star. If you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. You. You make it happen. You're the one. And yet Jesus comes along. The Son of God, the Messiah, equal with God. He is God. He's the beginning and the end. And he says... I can't do this on my own. Now, let me just say, I, I, I know that some people right now are squirming and are like, why is he spending so much time on this? You're the people I'm talking to. Those of you who are hearing this and, and are legitimately doing some self-assessment and, and recognizing, like I recognize in my own life, yeah. Yeah, I tend to struggle to turn to God rather than looking at myself as the answer to all of my problems, looking at myself to be able to fix everything. Yes, I really do struggle with that. That's a good word. I'm not so concerned about those people. I'm concerned about the person who pushes back against this because this is a blind spot for you. You've bought into what culture has told you, and Jesus here is pushing back against that right now. So... Then Jesus specifically here says, you know, he's saying, I can do nothing without my father. And he says that several times in John. But specifically here, there's a a particular item that he cannot do on his own. What is it? He cannot judge justly on his own. He cannot judge justly on his own. But again, us, here we go. We believe 
that if we just go deep enough in our own hearts, then we're going to be able to judge justly. We really believe that because we've been told that, and we like that. We buy into that. I just need to search my heart, and then I'll be able to judge justly. But isn't it interesting how when we judge justly based on what our heart tells us, it always ends up being in our best interest. It's never submitted to anybody or anything else. And then, of course, we expect God to affirm it. That's when we like God to come in, is after we've made the decision, after we've done the work, here you go, God, we did all the work, now you just affirm what I've done. Thank you very much. Don't need you to ask questions, don't need you to inspect it, just need you to affirm it for us. And I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching here, because he knows his audience, and he knows that this is what they're doing. And can't we see the irony here? Jesus submits his will to the fathers, and that is why his judging is just. Again, true justice comes from proper submission. And then we get into the testimony stuff, the testimony of the witnesses. Now, if you remember uh, Tyler James last night kind of set us up for today. He he said that after Jesus heals and and he does it on the Sabbath, he says "A, a trial of sorts starts with Jesus And there are three parts to the trial. And Tyler took care of the first part of the trial for us last week, where Jesus uh, opens his defense by saying, but I do have authority to do this. The second part of the trial is what we're going to get into now. Now Jesus presents his defense through his witnesses. And if you know anything about how a trial works, you can see that this 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 should be very familiar. So now he gets to present his witnesses, and he's going to present four witnesses. And then we're going to get at, later we're going to get into the third part of the trial where, where he, he's done with his defense. He's done presenting his case, but now he actually prosecutes against others. <laughs> so he takes an extra step that not too many people will do in a trial. But he prosecutes at the end. And, and his point in these witnesses, in these next nine verses, is simply that everything you could ever want or need for a true witness and testimony about who real Jesus is, is given to you. It's given to us, and yet we still refuse to believe. We refuse to believe the testimony of the witnesses. And there's some really good wordplay here. This is interesting to me because I'm a, I'm, a, um, I'm a word nerd, and I love rhetoric and stuff. In verse 35, Jesus says... You were willing to, you were willing to, that word willing to, it, it means that you, you, desi- you fully desired, you wanted to you rejoice and come along and believe. But then he says, you were willing to do that, you desired to do that for a little while, and the implication is as long as there was no cost to you. Listening to John the Baptist, there was really no cost. I I can go along with that. There's no cost to me. He said, you were willing to do that for a while. There was no cost to you. Think about his parable in Matthew, the parable of the seeds. Scatter seeds on the four different soils. This is like he's he's accusing them of being the third soil, where uh, where the seed sprouts up quickly, and there's a beautiful plant very, very quickly, but then all of a sudden here come the weeds to choke it off. The weeds would represent the cost of believing, the cost of embracing Jesus, the the cost of embracing the gospel. Then in verse 40, he he takes the same word and he completely flips it around. He says, yet, with all of these witnesses that I just presented to you, you refuse to come to me. You are unwilling. You, You have lost your desire. It's the same word, only negated. You do not want to believe in me so that you may have eternal life because now you're beginning to see that it's going to have a cost going to have a cost to it. So Jesus is telling them that their dark and stubborn hearts are deceiving them, even with all of these witnesses that are here to bear testimony. It's Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all other things. Who can understand them? So here are the witnesses. And Jesus sets up verses 32 through 40 with his statement in verse 31, which reminds people of Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, and Numbers 35, where it is required that there is more than one witness for a trial uh, for somebody to be found guilty. He has four. He has four. And by the way, they're not all the witnesses. There's just four here. So verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So this is beginning part two of the trial. 
testimony of the witnesses, and in these nine verses, God the Father is mentioned twice as one of the four witnesses, and this is the first time. The second time is going to be in verse 38. And understand, besides the Father, there are going to be three more witnesses that we're going to see. Look at verses 33 through 35. You sent to John, John the Baptist, and he, was born, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were, rejoice, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So John the Baptist bore witness. He is witness number two. And we see this light and uh, lamp and light language here. Very clear in their context what Jesus was communicating. We're not so sure about the lamp and the light, but in their context, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. A lamp in their context was a small handheld source of light, like a flashlight. But the light refers to the illumination of everything, the revelation of everything. So John the Baptist was the lamp pointing to the light. Jesus is the light of the world. God says in Psalm 132 that he has prepared a lamp for his anointed. And John the Baptist is that lamp, and he testified repeatedly to Jesus' light, to his divinity. And then you look at witness number three in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is even greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's saying, my ministry, my works, my miracles bear witness. And I think Jesus has a point. He's got a point. Look at what he did. Look at what he's doing. Miracles, healings, Supernatural beverage transformation? <laughs> Teaching that's better than Tom Schrader's? I mean, that, this is not magic. This does not happen by accident. This is something that God is doing through Jesus. You cannot just chalk it up to magic or luck. These things bear witness. They testify. Verse 37, the Father is mentioned again. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, this form you have never seen, but now you're, Jesus is saying, but now you're seeing it in me. And then witness number four in 38 through 40. And you do not have his word abiding in you, scripture, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the scriptures also bear witness. The study of scripture, here you go. The study of scripture is very, very good, and we're all about that. But it does not, in and of itself, impart life. We need to remember that. The study of scripture does, however, point to the life giver. That's why we study scripture, because it continually points us to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and an understanding of who he is and, and, and knowing him. And that is an important distinction we do not find life in the scriptures, but the scriptures point to the life giver. And by the way, I mentioned this before. I want to mention this now. It's not just these four witnesses. We have already heard that the Spirit also testifies. And in a minute, Jesus is going to bring Moses into the fold as another witness. Yes, Moses is part of the scripture witness, but it's a very specific part that's important. We're going to see that later. So here we have scripture that also bears witness to who the life giver is. Do you have any idea how many truly erudite, learned, well-educated Bible scholars there are in this world, many of them in seminaries, who do not know the very Jesus their scholarship talks about? Do you have any idea about that? I do. Been around a lot of seminaries. There are a lot of people that could run circles around anybody in this room when it comes to Bible knowledge, and they don't know Jesus. It's sad, and it's fascinating. And it's scary to me how influential these scholarly non-Christians are in our world. Knowledge is not salvation. A PhD in Bible does not a Christian make. And, 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 and I tell you, you know, education is a wonderful thing. It is important. I, in addition to pastoring, I've worked as an instructor in higher education for the last 22 years teaching human communication theory. But our culture has elevated education in really unhealthy ways. And I see that even in my classrooms. There are people in my classrooms who don't belong there. 
not because they're stupid, but because this isn't good for them. They, they're good elsewhere and, and could thrive elsewhere. I'm not supposed to say that around the institutions I teach at, by the way. But it's true. We've elevated it too far. Knowledge does not save. And it's interesting that in every era, it seems like Christianity has had to deal with this. In the late first century and early second century, there was a, a heresy, a false teaching known as Gnosticism. And there was a group of people known as the Gnostics from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis, which means knowledge. Um, they would say, yeah, believing in Jesus, yes, that's important. That kind of gets you started on your, on your um, journey to salvation. But the journey to salvation is not complete until you know as much as we know. And they became all about the knowledge, and they said that true salvation comes through knowledge. It's, it, here you go, it's not the gospel, it's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus knowledge. And the Apostle Paul, one of the most knowledgeable guys ever to live, made sure in his letters that whoever he was writing understood that knowledge is good, but knowledge does not save us. And John the author of this gospel also in his letters wrote a lot about that as well because he was writing late in the first century and he was beginning to deal with that false teaching a lot. Study the scriptures, yes, but let them point you to the true light. Let them take you to Jesus. So here are your four witnesses. They are the Father, John the Baptist, Jesus' own works and miracles, and scripture. Pretty good. So all of this, Jesus says, and you still won't believe. Look at verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You don't believe. You don't get it. Okay. Again, think in terms of this trial. That's how Jesus is talking about this, with his shadowy references to the Torah's witness requirements in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Verses 32 through 40, we have four different witnesses coming from four different angles and perceptions, all testifying to the exact same thing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and in a minute we're going to hear from Moses as well. So for a jury, this would be a 15-minute conversation, if that, done deal. Yet we reject Jesus even with all these witnesses and all this evidence. We are so blind. Why? Why are we so blind? Here you go. Because our hearts are corrupt with sin. Our hearts are corrupt with selfishness. As, as Luther said, we're turned in on ourselves. In fact, our hearts are so corrupt that our hearts will not allow us to entertain the idea that our hearts have deceived us. That's how corrupt our hearts are. Here's how Seth Trout says it. In spite of what people say, they are not seeking truth. Rather... They are seeking their own gratification and pleasure, usually at any cost, especially at the cost of truth. Luke Simmons, who's the lead pastor at Redemption Gateway, was telling us, they were mostly lead pastors and preaching pastors throughout the Redemption Network, he was telling us about a book that he recently read about pastors in ministry and the various moral failures of some who lead churches. We've, we've all heard about this, about uh, pastors who have had serious moral failures leading churches. And the book claims unequivocally that the mind always follows the heart and our hearts cannot be trusted. Therefore, what the authors of this book found is that when a pastor begins to edge away from biblical authority in their preaching and teaching, they are almost always found later to be engaged in some serious moral failure behind the scenes. Do you see the connection there? You start to feel like a past, your pastor is moving away from the authority of the scriptures that could, there's a correlation. We don't know if there's cause and effect, but there is, there is a correlation we can point to, the fact that maybe there's something going on in their life that isn't good. And the reason I bring that up is because everyone is susceptible to this, pastors included, and in many cases, especially. Especially. Because being a pastor comes with a lot of power and authority and opportunity. Our hearts cannot be trusted. Also consider this interesting theme that constantly pops up in the Gospels, including John's. How many times did the people try to get Jesus to be not the Messiah that he is, but the Messiah they wanted him to be? That was constant. We're going to see that in January when we come back to this. 
So if Jesus agreed to be the kind of Messiah that the people wanted, but not the kind of Messiah that he was, in other words, the kind of Messiah that the people wanted, here's what they wanted. They wanted free food, military power, and a miraculous and infallible health care plan. That's one way of putting it, okay? He certainly would have garnered lots of glory and affirmation from humans, right? But that wouldn't have lasted. He would have become the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately Messiah. And he would not have been the Messiah that the people then and all of us today desperately need now. And, and, And yet, look at verses 43 through 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. (laughs) How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? See, you and I will believe nonsense if some human being says it, and especially if some human says something that gives you some measure of esteem and glory and affirmation. You'll believe that. We'll believe that. In other words, we value approval from and the foolishness of humans way more than we value the favor and truth of God. So here you go. Nothing has changed for thousands of years. All of us are way more interested in glory from humans than glory from God. Here you go. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter understand this better than any of us do. Some of you have seen or heard me talk about obsessively the research on dings. You know what I mean? The research on ding. Your phone. Your phone dings. Ding! <sighs> You're in the middle of some really important conversation or meeting. Ding! This is so much more important because that ding means somebody wants you, somebody liked you, somebody favored you, somebody retweeted you, somebody affirmed you, somebody reposted you. Oh, boy. And the research shows there is cause and effect here. When you get the ding, you get a little shot of dopamine. We're addicted to our phones. We are addicted to our phones. People in my generation have acquired this addiction. There are people in generations behind my generation who are born into this addiction. We love the dings. We want dings. If only God would ding us. But he does. He does. Read his word. Read his word. He's constantly dinging us. Constantly. He dings us with how much he loves us. He dings us with how much wisdom he has for us. He dings us with his grace and his mercy. And his reminder that he is faithful. He dings us with how he's willing to correct and discipline us so that we might know true joy. And he dings us with how much he has sacrificed for us. God dings us way more and way better than Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tinder, Snapchat, whatever your deal is, way more than any of them. Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Notice, if I were still trying to please people, that was his life for, a, for many, many years. And it was a rat race. Somebody said, I don't know who it was, but here you go, it's true, so i got to put it up on the screen. You can be faithful or popular, but you can only choose one. Here you go, even, even Keller gets in on this. Tim Keller writes, the very core of the gospel presentation is to show people that in some way or another, they've been trying to make themselves right and they've been failing. That's exactly what Jesus is on his horse saying to us here. Also, really important to understand. And this cannot be understated. One of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's predicting that there will always be false Christs heralding themselves to us. There will always be pious religious figures holding themselves up as some sort of savior, if not the ultimate savior. And there will always be people willing to be led astray to their own destruction. Does anybody remember Jim Jones? Okay, those of you who don't know that name in Jonestown, Guyana, you're younger, you should look that up and understand that. Or you should buy Jeff Ginn's book, G-U-I-N-N, 
The Road to Jonestown, and read that book. It's a long book, but it will fascinate you. The number of people who followed Jim Jones literally to their own destruction. He was a false Christ. 1978. Jesus warned about him. In verse 44, the main reason people do not believe in Jesus is because they do not long for the favor of God, but rather the approval of humans and the desire to be able to say things like, in my heart, I know I'm right. Again, just look at verse 44 one more time. Let me read it. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Uh, Tyler Thompson says, the glory of God is the true glory, but the glory that comes from other human beings, those are the lesser glories, but we prefer the lesser glories. We do. The glories of others, affirmations of others. Why do we prefer the lesser glories? Because, ultimately, you and I believe that we can control these lesser glories. We can't control the ultimate glory, the true glory, but we can try, anyway, to uh, control the lesser glories. And, and for years, honestly, for years, those lesser glories have served us well, our wealth, our comfort, our pleasures. But what happens when the trials come? What happens when the challenges come? What happens when the suffering comes? What happens when the persecution comes? We need Jesus. We don't need a political party. We don't need an ideology. We don't need a cause. And we don't need the favor of others. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. And so we wrap this up with the last three verses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is only one. There is one who accuses you. Moses. On whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus closes this with the prosecution, and it's really it's what I would call ancient cognitive dissonance. This is part three of the trial. Now he prosecutes. How many of you remember old school Perry Mason? Okay, old school Perry Mason would defend the criminal, and, and not only get the NG, the not guilty, but he would also then point the court to who? The real perpetrator. <laughs> that was Perry Mason's special gift. This is what Jesus is doing. So now he's pointing them to the real perpetrator, and he's saying, you are the real perpetrator, the professional religious people. See, one thing that kept the Jews from believing in Jesus was Moses. He was their guy, and, and they supposedly believed him. But believe in him, but, but Jesus turns that notion on its head by referring to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses his, himself says to God's people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet or a deliverer, small d, or a savior, small s, like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Moses is pointing. And this is not the only place where Moses says this. There's other places. So here's what Jesus is saying, paraphrase. He's saying to them, you say you cannot believe in me because you believe Moses, but Moses talked about me. He told you to be on the lookout for me and that you must listen to me. So if you say you believe in Moses, you will believe in me, but you don't. So you are hypocrites. You are not who you say you are. Now, this is going to get a little tough, and I hope you know I'm preaching first and foremost to myself here. But if a little bit gets on you too, that's good. Jesus says that you can know a, a tree by the fruit it bears. In other words, if someone says that Jesus is their Savior, are they living in and by the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If there were a trial, and according to the evidence in your life, in my life, would you be convicted of being a Christ follower? Could we convict you of that? And I, I hear somebody, well, uh, but Christianity isn't about works. Uh, I beg to differ. Salvation is not about works. Salvation is not about works. But once you become a Christian, because of your salvation, in response to your redemption, you will do works. There will be fruit in your life that result from true salvation. I have a reference in here, James. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, James writes, What is it good, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled 
without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then this really convicting verse. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Pretty powerful stuff. See, they claim to be God's people. Their claim is rooted in believing Moses, but the fruit of their belief is dissonance. The fruit of their belief is actually dead. Jesus is merely pointing out the inconsistency of their words and their actions. So, what's the message for us in that? Praise God for grace, right? And here's why. Because none of us can truly live up to the hype of stated belief in Jesus. None of us can. The reality is that Jesus is up here and we're going, we believe, we believe, we believe. Oh, who's that? You know. The truth is there's always this gap. So praise God for grace. And here's grace in action. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says, and I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Here's grace in action. When, when he says to the church in Corinth, Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Here's faith and grace in action when Paul says in Romans chapter 8, you are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We're works in progress. And we live in and by the sanctification of the risen Christ in us. That is such good news. Here's what we need to remember. God is not our co-pilot. He's our pilot. And we should be glad to fly with him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray your word would be heard. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, eyes would be open, ears would be open, hearts would be transformed, minds would experience that metamorphosis that is needed so that we can test what is true and know what is good and excellent and praiseworthy. So I pray that that would be in our lives, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I just get, I haven't looked, but I get the sense that we're a little late, so I'm going to do this as briefly as I can. We're going to come to the Lord's table. So if you have your kit, you can open it up now. If you don't have one, please go into the lobby, grab one. Not a problem. I want you to have one. We're going to take communion together. Those of you who are watching on the live stream, hopefully you have your elements ready. If not, go ahead and go get your elements, because we're going to sing a song together. We're going to Come to the Lord's table, remembering that this is the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And in this, we confess our sin, we confess and testify that we know Jesus and we celebrate our salvation and we proclaim his death until he comes again. And again, um, we know that uh, people need prayer and so we will be masked up in the corners here on the wings, if you need prayer, please come forward. And there will be people staying after uh, the song as well if you want to come up afterwards. Death had claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life. The darkest day in history. There on a cross they made for sinners. For every curse his blood atoned. 
final breath and it was finished But not at the end we could know Before the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What sacrifice was think it says it all. It's from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, so I'm going to go ahead and use it again. So this is our prayer, our charge as we go. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.